The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's good to be with you again. Since we last spoke, you released a definitive feasibility study concerning the Dubbo Zirconia project. Would you care to bring us up to date? Yes, certainly. It was a, a fairly lengthy and in-depth study of the project, and we took into account all of the factors and all of the factors affecting the, the rare metal and rare earth industry at this stage. But the fundamentals are we came out with a capital cost of about $990 million, their Australian dollars, I should add, and... Through that, we generate a revenue of about $500 million a year against operating costs at around $200 million a year. So we have a $300 million cash flow per annum. Now, we've only based the initial financial model on a 20-year life, but the resource that we have there is really capable of, of operating for 80 years or even 100 years. So it's a, it's a long-life big resource, but financially, it tended to just focus on the first 20 years. So we were very, very happy with that result. It shows how financially robust the project is, and that followed on many years of hard work to show how technically robust the project is. So for about $990 million after three years or so, you've covered the cost of a project with a lifetime of as little as 20 and as much as 100 years with what will bring you a net of about $300 million a year. That seems like a very insignificant investment for the return you're getting, although it's almost a billion dollars, and that's not an insignificant amount. You're completely correct there, and we always recognise that a billion dollars is a lot of money, especially for a small company. But you're right also that the, the financial result will see a, a capital payback inside four or five years. So it's a very strong project in that sense. But the billion dollars, we've already put in the steps involved to raising that billion dollars. And last year, we appointed two large banks, Credit Suisse and Sumitomo Matsui Bank, to work with us and work with Petra Capital to help us to put the whole financing package together and that process has started and we've allowed 12 months to get that done so this time next year I hope to say that we have project approval from the state government and also we have all our financing in place and it's a big task uh, we certainly recognise that but the strategic value of the project helps that process and by strategic I mean the metals that we will produce certainly have strategic value to a number of countries and I can here single out both Japan and Korea for example are very active looking for alternate sources of supply 
supply of strategic metals to, to what they currently get from China. So there's funding available from sources like that. There's also funding available from other international entities that'll help us put that billion dollars together. Well, really, the risk is low as far as that is concerned, considering you have memorandums of understanding for offtake with at least four industrial entities in Asia. We also, of course, have one with a European metal alloy manufacturer for our niobium output, and then that deal basically uh, they'll help us with the technology to produce high-quality ferro-niobium, which they will then use themselves and also sell into the European market. So it gives us a bit of diversity because otherwise uh, all of the product is sort of fundamentally heading into Asia. At this stage, places like Japan and Korea and probably India. Also, we are seeing for the first time quite a bit of interest out of China, which has surprised me a little bit because China is a big producer of rare earths and a big producer of zirconium chemicals. And for us to be able to look at selling some of our materials back into China was a little bit of a surprise. But certainly there's a changing set of circumstances in China as well. So it's good to open up other potential markets. Well, in previous conversations, you ruled out China, at least for the foreseeable future, but it seems that strategy is changing. It is. As I said before, it was a bit of a surprise, but it came about after one of our marketing guys was in China, and he came back quite enthusiastic about the level of interest. So we have to say we're not changing our tack. We're always looking for places to sell our products, but that was a pleasant surprise. Your market isn't really exclusive to anyone then, is it? No. I mean, the only place we haven't put a a large amount of hard work into is uh, probably North America and the U.S. in particular. We've done one marketing effort into the U.S. and at that stage, I think probably early on, we're going back to 2010, 2011, the, the strategic value of some of these things probably hadn't hit home as much. Probably smart for us to come back into the U.S. now and do another marketing effort to talk to potential users and users of our products in the U.S. and see what uh, level of interest we get. And again, we'd like some diversity. We'd certainly like to be able to say that we are worldwide and where we sell our products, not be too focused in one or two countries. And the U.S. is, again, a very important market for a lot of these metals. What are some of the uses for zirconium and niobium? Just start with zirconium first of all because it's a very diverse applications. A lot of specialist ceramic applications and probably the most well-known one is in your car or your vehicle exhaust system. There's a sort of can-looking type object right at the very end of the car exhaust. That's the catalytic converter which uh, takes out all the nasty gases that are coming out of the engine. And in each of those there's about a half a kilogram of zirconia ceramic and you often hear about platinum palladium in that component but they do forget to tell you there's a, a major zirconia component as well and that's currently about 30 to 40 percent of the whole zirconia market and then there's many other applications in drying agents in paints and other general drying agents ceramic tiles for example zirconia is often used as the glaze and the colouring of the on the top of the tiles and then the final end result is zirconium metal which is the metal that holds the enriched fuel in place in a nuclear reactor because uh, zirconium is the only metal that can withstand the temperatures and the uh, neutron bombardment that you get in a reactor so it's a small but very high value in part of the business. Niobium's a little bit different. It's more focused in probably 90% ends up in the steel industry in some way. Traditionally, niobium steels have been used for pipelines, bridges where you need high strength and low weight. But what we have seen maybe five years or more or so ago, the auto industry started to pick up on the niobium steel. And what it does is a very small amount of niobium, a few dollars worth of niobium in the steel of a vehicle chassis, lightens it by about 10%. And that's all the, where you get all the emissions minimization and fuel efficiencies with the lighter of the vehicle without any loss of strength, I should add. They're the two, the broad applications of, of niobium and uh, generally the zirconium 
communities that's an extremely diverse business. I've said this before on this program and other segments, but as long as men and women roam the planet, there's going to be a market for automobiles. And let's take a look at China, for instance. That's a market where only 3 in 10 individuals have an automobile with 1.3 billion people, and that's rapidly advancing. Your market is endless. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're quite right again for China, and again, India is a, is a you know, following in very similar path. And it's not only the 3 out of 10, but if you look at the size of the populations of both those countries, I think China's 1.3 billion and India's 1.1 billion. Well, if you take that percentage, you end up with a large, large number of automobiles uh, that are going to require a lot of components. And that is across the board here. It's zirconium, niobium, and of course, all the rare earths that get used in autos these days. So if you're going to be a mining company in this market, you'd want to be alkane resources, wouldn't you? <laughs> Um, well, it's probably a pretty good way to put it, actually. I, I quite like that concept. And, uh, yeah, look, we, we do believe we're in, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, we've got substantial cash resources in the bank. We're building and developing our latest gold project, which we'll be producing next year and, and having cash flow from that. And then following on behind is the very large Dubbo Zirconia project. So, yeah, we would like to believe we're in a very, very good position. And wait, there's more. The Tommy Lee Gold project that you alluded to, I guess compared to the Dubbo Zirconia project, it's small. But compare that to most other junior gold companies out there, and it's not small. You're going into production in just a few months. Again, that's correct. I mean, it's a $100 million investment to generate around $30 million a year. Current spot prices are gold about $30 million a year. 10-year project life we see at this stage. Again, absolutely, it's not a big project in any terms, but it's a cash flow. It's, a, it's a, We call it our bread and butter business. It'll sit behind us, sit behind everything else we do. That cash coming in enables us to keep doing other things. It obviously keep the company going, doing all the things it has to do corporately. Also, to keep exploring. I mean, you know, the blood of any mining company is, is having a project pipeline, bring new projects on the stream. We're not talking large amounts of money, but just enough for these projects to keep flowing on. Once Dubbo's up and running in, say, four or five years' time, maybe there's another project, another gold or a gold copper project sitting behind it, ready to come on stream as well. So that all leads us to sort of the concept of a large cash flow business. Uh, that'll enable us to generate profits and, again, hopefully pay dividends and that's always been the strategy so timely sort of is the building block of the foundation of which the big projects like Dubbo and other projects will follow on this sounds like nothing but good news during the entire course of this interview the caveat is the market right now it's tough all over rare earths rare metals gold it's just been a struggle but yet your position much better than 95% of the other junior miners right now what are you saying to your current shareholders and your potential shareholders keeping in mind that you yourself are a shareholder. Yeah, again, very good observation, and you know, we would currently describe ourselves as being in the, in the quadruple whammy. I mean, we fit in, we're a junior resource company, which have been hammered in the market. We're a gold company, we've been hammered in the market. We're a rare metal, rare earth company, we've been hammered in the market. I think, I'm not sure what the fourth one is now, but yeah, generally there's just a whole range of negative sentiment, and when the market gets into this negative sentiment, even having really good projects, having the cash in the bank doesn't really seem to account for much. So all we say to our shareholders is, look, hang in there. We're very comfortable and confident things will change probably not this year but maybe as we roll into 2014 and then for potential investors is to look at it and say well you know right now the, the company's got a market capitalization about 170 million dollars we've probably got 120 million dollars in cash in the bank you know, a new gold project coming on stream it is significantly undervalued i guess the you know, the judgment that people have to make is, when do you buy? I mean, I can't 
put a time on that other than to say I think over the next couple of months is a very good time that, uh, for, for buying opportunity. I just can't believe the price will continue to go down, but in this market you just don't know. It's interesting because most people buy in when the market is high. It's just the nature of the human condition. Yeah. But the smartest and the wealthiest people, they get in when no one else is really looking. That's exactly right. If we all had that ability to pick the bottom of the market, we'd probably all be retired and living in some exotic tropical island somewhere. So I haven't quite mastered that yet. But it's an interesting thing to be able to try and predict where the bottom might be. Uh, hopefully it is somewhere now and over the next couple of months. And then we'll we'll see a general return, not just an alkane, but a general return back into the resources sector. You're an Australian-based company, but you do trade on the prestigious OTCQX exchange here in the U.S. We do, and certainly ANKLY is our, our trading ticker. Um, and, you know, we've certainly done that with a view to attracting the market in the U.S. to invest in the company if they don't want to come you know, via the international broking system that we have these days, but certainly that opportunity is there in the U.S. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, president of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100%-owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare Project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back. Thank you. For our new listeners, if you don't mind, give us a brief summary of Prophecy Platinum. Well, Prophecy Platinum is a development stage platinum palladium focused exploration development company. And we have two projects in Canada, a world-class scale open pitable deposit up in the Yukon called Wellgreen, and then a second project called Shakespeare that's located in the Sudbury Mining District, which is the largest regional producing area in North America for platinum and palladium. My experience with platinum and palladium, and I've been covering them on and off for about 15 years now, relates directly to the automotive industry and catalytic converters. Do you see any change in that demand for catalytic converters as automobiles become more quote-unquote green? In terms of a change in demand relative to improving or increasing environmental requirements and regulations, 
over time, the trend has been towards a greater amount of platinum and palladium, which have the catalytic activity to basically eliminate the smog and the pollutants that are coming out of the exhaust. Over time, we've seen the quantity of those metals go up in order to meet higher standards. The industry has been able to achieve some reductions, so better efficiency of the use of those metals. But we would expect that the trend will continue, particularly in the developing world where pollution has become, particularly smog, has become such an issue. China and India would be good examples where they are going to be starting to adopt more stringent standards, which would mean more catalytic converters, not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. And with the rapid increase in the market for automobiles anyways in those countries, and already China is the same size market for automobiles as the United States, there's going to be, we believe, significant growth and increase in demand for particularly platinum and palladium. Even though many of us now see China as this great industrial power, compared to the U.S., there are fewer cars on the road per capita, much fewer. There's a great deal of area for growth in the automotive arena in China. Yeah, no, it's really striking. In fact, there was a a relatively recent report by Fidelity looking at automobile growth in various countries around the world. And they took a look at, in that study, some data that was put together by the World Bank that looked at the number of automobiles per 100 drivers in various countries. And as you can imagine, the United States was near the top of that at about 90 vehicles per 100 drivers, and much of Europe was in the same area. And the reference line they were using was GDP per capita, so kind of a wealth factor. And what was striking is even though the Chinese market is as large in total vehicles as the United States, China has huge catch-up potential in terms of where they sit on that curve. Currently, you know, it was showing in that study about three cars per hundred drivers, and their GDP per capita would suggest more like 10 would be uh, if they were in trend with the other countries around the world based on GDP per capita. And so just the sheer catch-up to where they probably should be anyways, plus the growth potential as they become a more mature developed economy is striking in terms of the number of vehicles that it's likely looking at. And because their environmental standards are increasing so much to deal with their smog and pollution issues, uh, I think this is going to be a huge boom for uh, platinum and palladium consumption, which is really the only application for catalytic converters for eliminating those pollutants. And car sales here in the U.S. have gone up around 12% recently, at least they have with Ford, so there's no shortage of demand here either. It's been surprising. I think the strength in North America, Europe has been weaker. Uh, They continue to mull around, and so more vehicles in Europe are diesel, and so that diesel engines require more platinum in their catalytic converter, so it's actually had an impact on the platinum market. It's been not as strong growth. Palladium has been by far the best-performing metal in the mining space. Platinum was second to that, and it's been mostly held back by that sluggish European automobile sector. We're seeing some occasional spikes in volatility in the platinum and palladium prices. What do you attribute that to? Well, because of the concentration of production, particularly out of South Africa, about 75% of the world's platinum and palladium comes out of South Africa. And in fact, if you add up Southern Africa and Russia, it's over 90% of the world's production. There are a number of really structural features which make it a challenge for the South African mining industry to be able to maintain production. Production for platinum peaked in 2006 and for palladium mining production peaked in 2004 and it's been falling in both metals since that point. In fact, if we look back over the last six or seven years, production's been falling at two to three percent a year on average. And last year was a huge drop out of uh, South Africa. A lot of that's being driven by social unrest, 
strong labor unions who have been staging strikes and, and other events, and the sheer fact that the sector, because these mines down in South Africa are very deep, they're narrow horizons, which means your costs are high, you're, you're not really able to mechanize the mining, and because of the depth they're mining at a kilometer or a kilometer and a half depth, typically in these mines. Their cost structure is very high. In fact, it's been estimated that 70% of the mining industry for platinum, which is probably primarily these deep South African mines, are not producing an ounce of platinum at their all-in cost of production. And what that effectively means is you've got a sector that's just not doing well companies are not going to be reinvesting into maintenance, into expansion. They're certainly not going to be developing new projects with that. And because of the inherent lag in the mining industry anyways, in terms of being able to bring new production, because it it takes so much capital and time to be able to bring new mines on, this could be setting up a situation very similar to what we saw in silver a few years ago, when the price of silver was around $5 an ounce, and the producers were not making money and not reinvesting in production. I think that's around the time that Warren Buffett took that huge stake in physical silver. And sure enough, a few years later, we saw that lack of reinvestment in the sector as demand continued to grow, which it typically does in these industrial metals over time with population growth and industrialization in the third world. We saw the silver price rise to the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and eventually hit $50 an ounce uh, before backing off a bit. Now it's currently in the $20 to $30 range. But we could see a similar development in platinum and palladium because of the falling production and increasing demand that we're seeing currently. And so we're seeing more and more investors shift their strategy into platinum and palladium, correct? Yeah, I think a lot of people are they're cautious on gold. They've seen the correction in gold. I think that's uh, shaken some investors a bit. Gold may take a little while to further consolidate before moving up. A lot of interest has shifted to platinum and palladium because the fundamentals are so much stronger, because they are a combination of industrial and investment use, but dominantly industrial, and particularly the single largest use for both platinum and palladium is catalytic converters, which is such a strong growth market. Well, with production costs of near $1,700 an ounce in South Africa and a spot price of near $1,500 an ounce, are the majors turning to the politically stable and economically more friendly Canadian Yukon? Yeah, there's no question that major producers are going to have to be looking at where they can diversify their production if they've got these issues of labor and rising energy prices and social unrest in in their key production areas. And Zimbabwe has also thrown in nationalization into the mix just for (laughs) for good measure. The challenge has been that that's been the focus of the industry in that area, and that is a very enriched area. It's been one of the primary producers. There hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of those regions, Southern Africa and Russia. I think there will be, but this is a situation where right now where there's very few development stage projects even out there to be looked at. Ours up in the Yukon is one of the projects that with 7 million ounces, which is definitely world-class in scale already, it really stands out as a project that's unusual because it's also amenable to low-cost open pit mining production. Our cost structure is going to be much, much lower than these deep underground mines. And so, you know, we could have one of the lowest cost producers in the world. And the other benefit of open pit mining is that it's very scalable. You can build these projects at different scales and be able to increase production. And with a deposit this large and with highway access to the project and other infrastructure that's needed for development, this could be a a very promising project, certainly for our company, but also for larger companies that might be interested in looking at acquisitions in the space. With the Chinese buying up as much of the world's commodities, especially with regard to precious metals, base metals, rare earths, etc. In fact, a leading country in doing so, why wouldn't they be buying up what they need in platinum and palladium from you? Yeah, no, we're definitely 
definitely hearing the same thing. In fact, we are hearing from Chinese groups that we're already in discussions with about the project, that they are concerned about security of supply of platinum and palladium. They recognize that South Africa is a problem in terms of being able to meet their needs. And with such a large automobile industry, they need a lot of metal. So we are already starting to see that interest in our projects. And because we're at a stage where we've still got a couple more years of work to do before we're being in a position to build them, we may see that interest express itself in investment in the company, financing of the project through to production. Those type of structures could be quite attractive. It tends to be that the groups that we're talking with on platinum and palladium are more the end users or even the groups that run the smelters rather than the mining companies at this point. But there are also opportunities, I think, for some of the major metal producers who may not have exposure to platinum and palladium. So some of the big companies, whether they be in Asia or elsewhere, also to look at projects of of significant scale. Well, the end users, from my experience, are doing all sorts of offtake deals now in Australia and Canada, everywhere. The large manufacturers in Asia, they're just going right to these junior mining companies. Yeah, the offtake structure can be really attractive for a company as well because it often means you'll see this group that wants the supply of metal come in and they may buy a percentage of the project and provide with their large balance sheets project financing and attractive interest rates. And so this can be really a win-win for both the development company ourselves as well as the company that's looking to secure supply because it kind of brings the strengths of both groups to the table. The experience and expertise in mining and development on the one side with the project asset and the need for the capital to build these projects which can be fairly capital intensive on the other side. So it's a really nice structure that works kind of bringing both the people that need the metal along with the groups that have the metal in these deposits to the table at the same time. I'm looking at an article, a Sprott's Thoughts article that was forwarded to me, and the title of this article is called The Dire State of Platinum and Palladium Miners by David Franklin, and in this article the phrase perfect storm was used, and I think he was referencing the political issues we were talking about in South Africa and Zimbabwe, compared to the potential in North America, but the perfect storm is really bigger than that. It encompasses everything we discussed. At some point it could all happen at once, then what? Yeah, and the reality is that mining is the type of industry that you just can't build a new factory anywhere you want to, and you can't build that production capacity overnight. So if you have these events, and particularly in the article you refer to from Sprott, where they talk about the multiple areas, you know, the rising cost of labor, the rising cost of energy, the fact they haven't reinvested into the energy grid in South Africa, and nationalization rumors, all of these factors build to have a situation where with so much production concentrated in that area, if you saw some of those mines shut down or major changes in the ability to reach production and maintain production from some of those mines, you could have radical price increases that could be really profound. And then companies outside of South Africa would likely see the equity market respond measurably because really it's the underlying value of the metal that drives the valuations typically in the mining stocks. My good friend and fellow broadcaster on this network, Jay Taylor, has made a buy recommendation on your company. Very few junior mining companies are getting such recommendations at this time. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I have known Jay for a number of years and had the opportunity to sit down with him at a mining conference here in Vancouver recently and let him know that this is my third public company, that I'd switched over from silver, which we had a very nice uh, run in silver, to platinum and palladium, and particularly that I'd moved over to Prophecy Platinum and, and we're excited about the developments on our Wellgreen project in the Yukon and then our mining project that's in the Ontario. We sat down 
haven't had an opportunity, and, and Jay had mentioned that he had followed this story for some time, that he liked the platinum and palladium dynamics, and it was just a, a really great conversation. We provided him some information so he could do his review and due diligence. He came out with a, a really strong recommendation on the company, so we very much appreciated that. We spoke about this earlier, but I, I want to circle back just a bit. When these offtake agreements take place for these metals, they, they tend to happen a few years before production begins, and then you're spoken for. It can happen pretty quick. Greg, do you think that will hypothetically be the case with your company? We have a number of options that we can look at for financing the project through the next couple of stages, but definitely offtake arrangements are very attractive. For a gold-only project, they're difficult because you're producing gold bars. But in a project that's platinum and palladium, it's also going to come along with other metals, typically, often copper and nickel, and, and in our case, cobalt as well. And so you've got underlying demand for those metals uh, from smelting groups. You've got the platinum and palladium itself. And so, uh, you know, a great structure with these offtake arrangements is bringing together the parties that want to secure supply of those metal concentrates and companies like ours. And it can be really a win-win scenario where you bring those deep pockets of those major industrial players to the table. It gives them exposure oftentimes to the success of the project. They often will buy a stake in the project itself. And it also gives the company access to the capital that they need to advance the project and bring it to production. Let's talk about how potentially undervalued your stock is and what you're doing to get the word out. Well, the entire sector has been going through a consolidation, Alice, as I know you are aware, for the last two and a half years, most of the equities hit kind of peaks sometime in 2010, 2011, and have been in a correction mode or consolidation mode along with the metals since that point. We're now at a point where this is one of the longest consolidations we've seen since the market lows for the metals in 1999 and 2001. And on a relative basis, if we take a look at the value of the metals mining company and the explorer developers, relative to the value of the metals today, we're at one of the lowest valuation points we've seen in the past decade or two. We're at the same levels on a relative value basis as 2008 and 2001. So this is truly one of those exceptional periods in time where investors who are interested in the space are able to buy names at very attractive rates, buy at times when others are selling, perhaps because they don't appreciate the overall dynamics of the sector and the need for these uh, fundamental metals as the world continues to develop. And it's one of the opportunities where high-quality names with good management teams and good assets in safe jurisdictions, I think, are going to be trading at significantly higher levels in the future. This is the kind of market, if we look at both 2008 as well as 2001, where once things start to change, they can move very, very rapidly. You know, effectively, Ellis, I, I see the market today as mining companies and explorer developers such as ourselves are trading not at what the companies are worth based on their fundamentals. They're really kind of trading on what people can sell them for. And so it's more of a, a volume and liquidity-driven market where things are not being priced on value. When the market turns and we start to see companies once again trading on their fundamentals and their underlying you know, value of the assets, that's when we could see a radical shift and see it very quickly where these things start to get bid up significantly above the current level. And I wouldn't be surprised with this correction two and a half years already in the making if we might not be seeing that move uh, here in the near future. Certainly it appears that 
the GDX and the GDXJ, which are the U.S. listed gold miners index and the U.S. listed junior gold miners index, which includes silver and, and some platinum names. It appears that they may have hit their lows, and we may actually be in a, uh, a position here where it's establishing a, a bottom, and we may see this move uh, higher at some point in the near future. You mentioned big names, management teams, and I can think of a company with a big name and a big success story. Nova Gold. And one of the founders of that company is the person I'm speaking with right now. Nova Gold was a tremendous uh, success story. That was my, my first public company I was involved in as a co-founder coming out of having worked for Barrick Gold for the first part of my career. In that period, we acquired our assets in a very similar market. If you recall, we picked up our first major acquisition, the Donlin Creek Gold Mine in Alaska in 2001. And similar to what we're looking at with Prophecy Platinum, it was about a 10 million ounce gold deposit. So it was huge, world-class deposit. But the sector was out of favor. The mining companies were focusing on profitability. They were cutting back expiration costs. These are all the same patterns that we're seeing now, the same trends where the big companies are slashing budgets, slashing projects, putting projects on hold, focusing on profitability. This is setting up for the same kind of big move, I think, in years ahead, where because they're a depleting industry, as they mine their reserves, basically the life of their product goes away, they have to replace those reserves with new projects or expanded reserves around their existing mines. And so the demand for junior companies with high quality projects that can come into the portfolios of these big producers, it will return. And it'll come back probably like it has in past cycles in Avengers. And we'll see really a dramatic increase potentially in the valuations of these, of these companies as the big companies start to go out and acquire large projects that can be meaningful in their portfolio. This sounds very exciting, especially when you consider the need for automobiles will not decrease. It never has since automobiles were first introduced to the world. And the need for platinum and palladium will only increase as well. Yeah, we're quite excited. The entire team, we've all arrived uh, at Prophecy Platinum, you know, six months ago after the board undertook a, an executive search. We're excited to basically be here. We think the opportunity we have here is getting in at the ground levels very early days, but with something very tangible. It's got a resource. It's got a first engineering study. And we see all kinds of opportunities on the engineering front, on the exploration front. We've been acquiring shares uh, over the last six months since we've arrived. You'll see us continue to be building our position. We believe in being owner builders, and we think this project and this company has an opportunity in a sector that's got fantastic fundamentals for the, the metals, platinum and palladium, to come to market with something really exciting. And this project with its location in the Yukon and our second project in, in Ontario, we think is, is the right type of project for an industry that's searching for projects outside of high political risk areas that can have scale and have attractive economics and low cost operations. Greg, another great interview. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to having you back again soon on the program. Thanks a lot, Alice. We look forward to being back to update you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. 
Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Alice, it's always good to be with you. Thanks. There's a couple of things we haven't covered on the show in all of the interviews that we've done. One of them is the cost of mining silver and gold, because I don't think anybody factors that into the price of gold and silver itself, and what these companies have to do to really make a living and pay their bills. And the other thing I want to talk about is your subscription service. There's multiple entry choices, options, and price points with regard to the Morgan Report. We've never really covered that. So let's do that today. David, what about the cost of mining silver and gold in this super depressed market? It's a study that our younger analyst, Chris Marchese, brought to my attention, said he really wanted to do some analytical work on the true cost of mining. So let me preface by saying what is the true cost of mining. The true cost of mining is what it really takes, all costs included, to get an ounce of silver out of the ground for a given mining company, or the true cost of gold, same thing. What the public hears, or even mining aficionados, that have a cursory idea about the mining industry here, cash costs. And cash costs sounds like that's the total cost, or that's what it costs in cash to get the the product out of the ground, which is really very, very, very misleading. Uh, The cash cost has very little to do with the total cost. So the total cost is what you would use when you make a financial statement. When you're running a business and you say, this is my cost of goods sold, That's if you run a dress business or a mining company or whatever. It's the true cost. So if you buy a dress for 10 and you sell for 12, your margin is 20%. If you mine an ounce of gold for 1,300 and you sell for 1,350, your margin is $50 and 1,300, which is a pretty low percentage. So this is what we discovered. Now, of course, you gotta look at a case-by-case, mine-by-mine basis. But we did that. We did that for the primary silver miners. And what we discovered was what uh, Chris had indicated to me that he thought, without doing analysis, that we're probably looking at about $20 an ounce. And I, you know, I'm pretty open-minded. I didn't say you're wrong. I didn't say much. I just thought to myself, like, man, that sounds kind of high. Nonetheless, what we discovered was that, yes, most of these primary silver miners are, costs are at least 20. They're increasing in a lot of cases. And so right now, when you can go on the open market and buy it for 22 or so, you're actually buying it at the same price that it takes a mining company to go having made the discovery to go out, go into the hole in the ground or in the side of the mountain or in the open pit or wherever it be and mine it out. So whenever you can buy a commodity at the price of production and have some patience, you're gonna make money. That's been proven throughout history. So what I'm suggesting is that for both gold and silver, that the true mining costs are at a level right now where the price level that we have in the open market is very favorable to those that not only want to invest in mining shares, but want to invest in metal themselves. Does that price hold true for companies that have been producing for a while? Let's say companies such as Endeavor or First Majestic and so forth, they've been producing for a few years. I mean, are their production costs that high? Yeah, well, those are some that we actually did. Yes, the problem is, you know, fuel costs have gone up. Now, they're not as high as they were a few years back. I know that. Well, you have to factor in all costs. I mean, labor costs, discovery costs, uh, ongoing costs for keeping the staff alive. In other words, what the... Uh, the rent on the buildings are. A lot of things are going up, even though the, the official rate of inflation stated by government entities is 
next to zero. The real world that we all live in outside of them, costs are, are increasing in many areas. So, no, it's total costs. And what I want to be a little bit careful on is when you're managing a mine you and you have different grades or the ability to drill out different areas of the of the mine and you have good margins in other words let's just go back for an example to $35 silver when you have big margins you will drill out or you will take off or that is lower grade because you have such a high margin and then when things get rough like they are now then you go to the higher grade sections of the mine. Now that's not true in all mines. Some mines don't have that kind of dispersity throughout their structure where you can pick and choose high grade, low grade, high grade, low grade, but some mines do. So that does influence the cost. So I want to be clear about that. I mean, it's not a real complicated business, but there are some intricacies about it that uh, unless you've been involved with it or whatever or studied it, you're not really, you don't think about it. So that's part of it, Ellis. But nonetheless, no, overall, even your better miners are seeing cost increases across the board. These are costs they can't control. I mean, the grade they can't control. They might control what grade they decide to utilize, but they can't control what the cost of labor is, what the cost of transportation is, what the duties are, what the fees are, what the smelting take is, and all that. Of course, a lot of this is by contract. When these contracts run out, then they renegotiate and they're higher or whatever. So the bottom line is $20 is actually probably a little bit of a low number. It's probably more like 22 Gold for many, many cases. And, of course, it's individual by individual. I mean, I don't need anyone calling me up and saying, well, such and such mine is $1,227 an ounce. I'm not disputing that. What I'm saying, we kind of took several case studies, looked at them all, averaged them out. And in the next report, in the next month, we'll actually build a couple charts for gold companies and silver companies. And what's very interesting about these two charts is pictures worth a thousand words. And you can look at some of these miners and see the cash cost. And these cash costs are very low. But then on top of the cash cost, which is one color, the chart goes in a different color and shows the total cost. So you can say, oh, my cash cost is you know, a very low number. But the total cost is much, much, much higher. So we present that and I think, a format. And I think that report alone, if you're really serious about this industry, is probably worth quite a bit to have at your fingertips, you know, print it out, put it on your wall or something, and you can refer to it. It's a good way because basically all companies, whether they're mining companies or whatever, are in the business to make a profit. And if you're not able to make a profit, then what are you doing in business? And just for the record, I'm not an expert or an analyst in this arena. I'm a journalist. I'm the guy that asks the questions of the analyst and the experts. Nevertheless, many individuals assume I'm an expert and are asking me, what they should do right now. And I'm telling folks that silver seems to be the real bargain. Well, if you go back to what I just said, I mean, if you could buy it under the cost of production, and it's not, it's above it slightly, and have some patience, I think you're going to do well. And, you know, people have asked me the same question, and, you know, it's very hard for me to be objective. I mean, let's face it, I'm talking my book in a way. Silver has a great deal to do with the living I make. Nonetheless, if you're looking long, long term, it's really hard to see another commodity or even a stock that you could have for the long, long term that would do better than silver. I just don't see it. But 
you know, things change, but it's certainly one that I would definitely take a look at. I mean, and again, be objective and do your own education. You know, don't take anything I say at face value. Do your own research. Make your own determination. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Silver has been considered a precious metal for 6,000 years and currency since 600 B.C. It's been commercially mined in Mexico since 1530 in mineral-prolific and mining-friendly Sonora State, where El Tigre Silver Corp.'s 5,000-meter drill program is now underway. El Tigre's properties with gold and silver mining concessions span approximately 267 square miles. With an attractive share structure and a strong, proven management team, El Tigre Silver Corp. is poised to identify a resource in an area that from 1903 to 1938 produced 75 million ounces of silver and 380,000 ounces of gold. Additionally, their tailing stockpile is currently progressing to production. Learn more about El Tigre Silver Corp. by visiting their website, eltigresilvercorp.com, or click through El Tigre's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. And we're back. Do you think also the silver and gold stocks that are featured on the Morgan Report are, are a real bargain at these prices at this time? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that if you have the stomach for it, and I think a lot of people have been burnt out. I know what our subscriber base is like now relative to what it was a couple of years ago when the precious metals was the place to be. And obviously a lot of people have given up, burnt out, been out, worn out, and they're out. And that's fine. And I certainly understand that. I've been around the markets for a long, long time. Nonetheless, I do think still that a few years from now, not months, but years, that the mining shares are going to make some people so much money that they'll go in the record books. In other words, I mean, I think it could be a life-changing event for some people. And you don't have to put in a fortune. That's the luxury of market. If you have the, the wherewithal to go against the trend and do something that no one else is willing to do, you're usually rewarded quite well. And that's where we're at. Well, I was having a conversation with a friend that works for a mining company, a silver company involved in PR. And he was asking me what I thought he could do to get the word out about the company and the market here in the U.S. And here's what I said. I said that people like David Morgan and myself and others have to continue to tell the story that you just told. And we have to do it over and over again until people just realize that, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Let me do some research, see what funds I have available, see what I'm willing to risk, and perhaps I'll have a go at it. And one of the places to land on, of course, is the Morgan Report. There's three levels of service, really. We have the basic service, which is the monthly report. Then I have an upgraded service, which is basic plus trading, which is a look over my shoulder. And it's more than that. Not only do I do uh, a video update and I show the charts or whatever I'm looking at, but it also provides a lot of videos. For example, when I go to one of these speaking engagements, if I'm allowed to, and not all cases I am, I will do interviews of companies like, oh, for example, Avino Silver or Silvercrest or U.S. Silver. And I take a camera crew or, or rent one and we do a on-site video sometimes it's actually at the mine sometimes it's in a um, studio type of an environment this is for people of course that are really tuned into this industry but it's sort of like going on a project with us it's just part of the advanced service in other words uh, i don't know anyone else in the industry that does that consistently so you would get not only the shows that i do but you also get all these mining trips that me or one of the staff does that you can look at and you 
also see, I'll look over my shoulder when I see a setup in the market for a gold trade, a silver trade, a bond trade, stock market trade, long or short. So that's the advantage. And then if you go beyond that, we have research reports that cover several companies. I won't name them all, but I'm looking at it probably over 12 there. We've put up all of the Silver Institute's newsletters. And then we have special reports. We have, of course, the futures expiration calendar, the options expiration calendar, a study we did on an up-and-coming base metal that we think is interesting, bulletproofing your shares. That report's on the website for our paid members on how to take your shares from your broker, put them in your own name, and get your hands on them. Trading in your sleep, kind of a long-term look at how to trade the silver market. Silver in the next decade, looking at a study I did in early 2010, glossary of mining terms for those that are new to these markets. Harvesting green on the peak sheets, this is something that David Smith wrote. That report alone is probably worth the subscription price because that will teach you how to enter an order in the gray markets where you're not listed, and especially if you do your own trading, and how to not get burned between the bid and ask price. He points out it's very valuable if you do any purchases in this area at all, especially if you're looking at the smaller exploration type companies or smaller to mid-tier companies. This will save you a lot of money. Top of three resource companies, those are sort of for your older set that just want to buy and hold, go to sleep at night and not worry. Trading silver like a pro, taking delivery off the exchange, plus a report I wrote, the 10 rules of silver investing, that's out there for everybody. How high will silver go? This is a very interesting report. This is written by a gentleman that actually is a ghostwriter for Jerome Smith, a silver guru in the last bull market. And when I say I'm the silver guru, I kind of put my tongue in my cheek. I mean, I don't take myself that seriously, even though I am a serious man. This gentleman wrote, and his number is about double my number. It doesn't mean either one of us is right, but he certainly has a stronger silver background as probably anybody on the planet, but very few know of him. Those of us that do have a great deal of respect. I was introduced to him by the Aiden sisters, and the Aiden sisters were taught by Jerome Smith how to do technical analysis, so this is how far back Jerome Smith goes. He's long deceased now. But last but not least is Archie's Rule, and this, again, is probably worth 10 times the price of a subscription if you're serious about this market. If you get and print out and read and study this Archie's rule, what you will discover is how to determine if you should make an investment in the company or not. It gives a baseline and a curve, a graph that you can use to find out what the cost of production is, what we just were talking about earlier in the show, what the margins are, and whether or not you should be buying into that company or not. Now, having said that, I also being truthful, pointed out in my book, Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, it's not going against Archie's rule, but it is pointing out that if you are in a bull market and you buy something that by Archie's rule, you'd say, no, I'd pass. And you buy something that, in other words, is a loss or a loser or right at the margin. Let's just say it that way. Let's say you're buying a company, it's $22 an ounce silver, and the company is mining silver at $22 an ounce. You get greater leverage when silver goes to $44 than you do with a company that says mining silver at $10 an ounce when silver's at 22 So you get more leverage if you're willing to take that risk, and that's, of course, an individual decision. But nonetheless, those are just the special reports, so not counting the videos and everything else, because that's the advanced service. The basic service gets all those reports I just named, by the way. And then lastly, we have the Mastermind Series, and that is for really fund managers, particularly, or sophisticated investors. Usually, I try to find a company once a year that you can double your money on. I've been fairly
fairly successful on now. We've only had a service up for a couple of years or so. The advantage there is when you become a member of the Mastermind, you get to look back at every single one we've ever done. And we have some pretty interesting guests on there. We've had Mike Maloney, for example. Sprott has been on there. Uh, David Franklin was on there from Sprott. And we usually get a guest from the gold and silver world that has insights that you wouldn't get anywhere else particularly. Of course, there's Q&A involved with our members. Again, it's not for everybody. It's one of those services that would be someone that really has a lot invested a lot to gain or lose in this market. Share with us a story that you can relate to us where someone or a group of people really benefited from something you published in the Morgan Report. Let's do mines management for an example. They're here in town. I know the geologist. I know everybody involved in the company. I've been in the project a few times. And I had inside information that was given to me. And of course, I can't trade on it. And I didn't. But the company was just sort of a pink sheet, nothing company really, great management, but really didn't have a project. And Naranda, which was in the whole days one of the bigger mining concerns, had signed over their project, the Mountain Ore property in Montana, to mines management. And I was given that information ahead of time. But again, I couldn't act on it. I have to wait for it to be publicly disclosed. And I did. And once it was publicly disclosed, I put it on my list and I explained the benefit of owning that company as a speculation. And so what happened was not much. (laughs) The letter went out and there were very few buyers and I was a little disappointed. That's okay. I mean, it is what it is. So the next month I made a graph and I said, if you put a dollar into this company or a dollar into that company or a dollar in this company, you're going to get this much silver for your dollar. If you put a dollar into mines management, you're going to get this much silver for your dollar. And it was just like off the chart. So that second letter went out and all of a sudden you could see the buying start off. You can talk to one of the guys at my management that's still there, most of them are. And he just watched the volume across the world just go bomb, 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 all the way around the globe. And it was a huge volume. And the price went from roughly the dollar we got in, eventually went up to around 10. So it was a 10 bagger. And you know, I'm not married to any of these companies. And I told everyone on my list, on my paid membership, that put a stop in at eight and we got stopped out. So for those that got in early and adhered to the stops, some had a 10 bagger, some had an eight bagger, some had a four bagger, depending on when they bought it. And we left it at that. Years went by and the company only got better and better and better and the float was really tight still, which I really like on these speculations. And I re-recommended it. And I've done it a couple times actually, not on this company. I've only been on this one twice, but other companies I've gone and sold at a profit and come back to. And it's down. It's down considerably from where I recommended it. It was uh, around the $2 and something level. It's in the report to the penny. And it's down below a dollar now. And had you asked me back Back in, say, 2005, actually, I had to sell some at five myself. If you were to ask at that point in time, you know, David, do you think this company ever be under you know, five again? I would have said absolutely not. And of course, I'd be absolutely wrong. Nonetheless, that's a speculation, though. We do everything. We do speculative stocks, mid-tier stocks, and top-tier stocks. The first thing you should do and print out and read three times is called How to Use the Morgan Report. And that will give you insights to paste on you because, you know, everyone's different. There's different ages, different net worths, different exposure to the metals. Some people just want a minimum exposure. Some people want to jump with both feet. Some people are extremely aggressive. Some people are very conservative. So it helps guide you into what your goals are. I don't have a lot of guilt about that. I wish it would have gone up from the $2 plus level. It hasn't. The project is still ongoing. I think it'll be a mine. It's a very 
tough call because it is speculative. There are issues. It's been progressing and progressing and progressing, but the market's been going sideways to down for two years now. So stock price is off substantially. But that'd be one. So I'm giving you a winner and a loser. I had a big winner on that one company at one time, and then it became a loser. But, you know, if you do what I teach, what you would have done, not that everyone did, was you would have taken that, let's say, that eight bagger, and then when it came on the list again, you would have used your speculative funds, which means part of that winnings, and put it back in that company and still be ahead. Because if you do what I teach, you would have taken a plenty of money off the table the first time and only redeployed a small amount of those winnings into it the second time. Well, we encourage any of our listeners that haven't done so to go to the Morgan Report and subscribe. David, thanks so much for joining me again today on the program. You're welcome, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with the Silver Guru, David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.